Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's very special continuation episode is called The Feminine Divine with Michelle Larson. back to another episode. This week, we are going to continue our discussion that we started last week with Michelle Larson. So I've got her back with me today. So if you didn't listen to the previous episode, she introduced herself a little bit and kind of her background. But the bulk of what we discussed was kind of this dichotomy of, of masculinity and femininity and the absence of the feminine divine in much of the Judeo-Christian religions. Um, and even when it is present, it's it's not up there front and center. So if you missed last week's episode, please go back and listen to it. It was a fascinating discussion. You can even hear me learn a, a thing or two from Michelle as we're discussing the subject. So Michelle Larson, welcome back. Thank you so much for coming on. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah, it's good to be back. Anything else on our subject that you wanted to, to maybe expound upon before we get into the subject for today? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll just kind of um, pick up where we left off a bit and just emphasize like these can be really this can be when we talk about um, male, female, masculine, feminine, it can be quite tender because our lived experience is actually, um, you know, a lot of people have this binary that's all over us in the world, you know, like politically, like we live in these binaries and when we actually, and we've like swallowed whole that, that the world is binary. And, and so when we actually let go of that, it is our reality and lived experience that that, that binary is what we we've lived with. And so I just want to acknowledge that, um, yeah, there's there, it's tender because there's deep harm that's been done um, mm. And it's not just like, I think we, we emphasize that women have been harmed by masculinity, patriarchy. And I do think all of that's true. I felt it in my own life. And yet I also want to acknowledge that there are a lot of men that have been deeply harmed by the feminine going in both directions in this kind of binary world that we live in. And so I want to acknowledge that. And I also feel deeply that um, I have a teacher that, that said like, um, harm that's done in relationship is also healed in relationship. And so I think there's something about like disconnecting masculine and feminine from male and female, seeing the, the like beautiful traits that they're just traits. They're just possibilities, you know, of the masculine and feminine and then finding them in ourselves. There's something deeply healing about that. Again, as we kind of go into some more of the um, the details of the the feminine goddess, that you know the the divine feminine. Um, again, to me, it's been deeply healing for myself, but I think for men and women, you know, again, going into the masculine feminine, it can also be a deeply healing practice. To jump into this, let's talk about some of these feminine divine characters or goddesses that have resonated with you and um, maybe some of their stories that that you think would be the most important ones to you? 
Sure. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll go big picture for just a minute too. Like, um, okay. growing up in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's one of the most beautiful, beautiful things about it is the community and that, you know, there's this richness to life, you know, there's like deep service. You know, I think all traditions have things that they do, um, really well. And one of those things that, you know, this organization that this church does well is, is service and, and you just give everything to it. You're so it's in everything that you do. There's so much to be done. You'll never do enough. You'll never get to all the conference talks. You'll never get to all the, like to to know the scriptures well enough, like, you know, read the book of Mormon every year, all the way through, or, you know, there's kind of this, um, (laughs) this like emphasis on like, know know our scriptures and know our stories. And, and I think for me, like, um, as I've looked for, for kind of like spiritual nourishment outside of that, I've just been blown away by like what there is, like, you know, like outside of conference talks and the scriptures, like there is rich text and spirit, like sacred text throughout like thousands of years. Like I was finding that I would come across a problem and just the way that I would think about time, I'd feel myself get like more and more, more tangled up in my problem. So for instance, I think like, oh, I've done this thing. I've done it again. Like how, when am I going to learn not to do this thing? And it, it felt like linear with time. And I don't know when this like practice started, but I, I actually, one day I felt like, you know, I want to put this thing inside of a circle, you know, that's like, like, it's not about like that I've done this again or you know, I, if my, if I put my problem or this big question that I have and I place it inside of a circle, it just changes everything for me. And, and so I start, I don't know, it's just a practice that I started doing. And then maybe like, um, a year after I'd been doing this practice, I have a a teacher who, um, kind of pointed me in the direction of Kali, Kali and Kali, it's a, a Hindu goddess. And, the early texts are actually um, early tantric texts. So we think about, tan- you know, we think tantra, that's more like, oh, there's like sex positions and everything. But actually the early <laughs> texts, the early tantric t- tradition was like this deep, deep poetry. Um, so this is like, you know, Tibetan, like early, early. And so I, I started. Now, are these like the Upanishads? Even before, this is like, and I might be mispronouncing that. <laughs> yeah, even before that. So, so for a time frame for the listeners, before that would be like before 800 BCE. So we're talking before the Old Testament would have been written. Yes. Trying to put some context for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I so you know I'm, I start exploring these texts, um, and and again these are like like monks in Tibet two thousand years ago. Two thousand years. And I find this passage in this text and it talks about putting things into circles. Like it was like, (laughs) it was like the exact, you know, instead of like thinking of things in this duality, it's like when we actually put it into this circular motion, we can be free from the duality. And, And it was like, how did I felt so connected to this random person that lived 2000 years ago, you know, so and, and it made me come alive to myself. And so again, that's like, like, um, when we come across these texts, they're just there's so much wisdom, deep, deep wisdom through thousands of years. And so I've really, um, yeah, like felt a lot of just um, uh, freed energy by 
turning towards these, you know, these texts from so many different religious traditions, but also outside of, you know, just uh, secular traditions as well. So, so I'll talk a little bit about some of the texts that I've come across. Now, I haven't studied much of the Vedic or the Upanishad texts, so this is all new territory for me. The things that I kind of landed on was more Stoicism. Yeah, no, so I'm excited about this. Yeah, and I love that too because we're all so different. So who knows what might make us come alive, but like there's so much, we don't have enough lifetimes to explore all of the richness that's out there. So whatever we're drawn to, like there's just so much there. There's actually a a book called Women Who Run With Wolves. And um, this is, I mean, there's so many times when I've like come alive through text, but I'll tell this one story. I, you know, I, 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 I've been hearing about this book and I finally crack it open on the airplane. I'm like on a trip to somewhere and um, I crack it open. And the first story I start to read is about this, this figure La Loba. The subtitle is uh, contacting the power of the wild woman. And so she tells a lot of stories. And one of the stories she tells is this about this woman, La Loba. And um, it's this woman who, um, you know, she's described as like um, hunched over and wild hair. And she, she spends her days like just kind of wandering in the desert. And she wanders in the desert and she, it talks about how she calls back the dead and dismembered um, aspects of ourselves, like calling back the dead and dismembered aspects of life. And so she just travels in the desert. And as she travels, she collects by the way that she calls back these dismembered parts is by gathering bones. So she walks in the desert and she gathers up the bones. And then when she's gathered all of the bones, she goes to the campfire and she lays out all the bones and she just feels into herself. I'm just paraphrasing the story, but she feels into her own vitality. And out of that comes this song. And she just starts to sing at the campfire. And as she sings, these bones like come back to life and like this wolf emerges. So I'm like on this airplane, I'm reading about this like La Loba and her singing her heart song. And like I myself, like I feel like I'm like turning into a wolf and I like I have to actually keep myself from like howling on the airplane. You know, it's just like such a visceral experience. And it's so visceral because for me, like as she tells this story, it's like I am finding the dismembered parts of myself, you know, the parts that I've like cut off that didn't feel like they were okay. So, so again, it's like through these texts, we come back to access with who we are. So, um, you know, that's just one story. Another um, place that I've found myself is in um, the Hindu goddess Kali and Kali. And so we, um, Kali is this kind of like another like fierce figure. I'm like drawn to these fierce figures. And again, I think it's because there was like one narrative about what it was to be female, you know, and it was often like, like you've described earlier is like, we have this meek figure of like Mary, or she's just, she's just like um, motherly. And so these are traits that we've like, prescribed to femaleness or the feminine. And, um, and again, this Hindu goddess, Kali, it's like she introduces me to this fierceness. 
so Kali, she's this Hindu goddess, and she's often seen on the battlefield with a sword in hand. Um, so she's holding this sword, and the sword represents like cutting through illusion. And she liberates us with her fiery nature. It's like, and we think of fire and we think of it like burning something down. But with with Kali, it's like she yeah, things burn, but it also like it's refines and it softens and it renews. So again, this like feminine energy of fierceness. And again, like it it helps me like channel my own anger. And um, yeah, I feel that energy come up of um, just like what it is to be like fiercely feminine and not in a way that's like harmful. It's like, you know, when, when you've like tipped over into the edge of like, you're using your anger to cause harm, but there's this type of anger that can just burn things clean. So Kali really has been a place where I found that. The masculine form of Kali would be Kala. And isn't, isn't that another name for Shiva? Yeah. Where I'm get, what I'm getting at is almost this duality of the same entity. Yeah, yeah. It's like the changing aspect of the same God. This same entity has both the feminine and the masculine within it. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, anytime one comes up, like the other will emerge unless we tamp it down, which we've been known to do. But yeah, yeah. So um, shocked. So. So Kali actually is kind of emerges out of Shakti. So Shakti is another Hindu goddess, which is really just kind of like this primal energy of the whole universe. So it's it's like the embodiment of power and strength and creation. Shakti is like seen as the great mother. And the other half of Shakti is Shiva. So the god who's seen as like the god of destruction. So yeah, you have Shakti and Shiva. And then out of that comes, yeah, Kali. Okay. Again, um, like so many of these traditions actually really like, it's like you can't have one without the other. It's like these, these kind of energies arise simultaneously. If someone would be interested in learning a little bit more about this, this, this fierce feminine woman, Kali, or um, anything else kind of along this vein, where, where should someone look to, to learn a little bit more about this? Yeah. I mean, there's, um, yeah, the, the Hindu tradition, there's a lot of texts. I mean, a really like soft, gentle place to start, I would say is a book called wild, wild mercy by Mirabai star. Um, and it, her subtitle to that is living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women, women mystics. So this is a book that kind of, um, kind of goes through a lot of, um, and, and some of the people I'll talk about today or some of the, um, archetypes I'll talk about today, the goddesses I'll talk about are, are represented in that book, but it, it's a good place to like, you can read through and, and see which ones even resonate with you and then go and, and she has books and references to um, find more about each one of them. Very cool. Another one that um, has really another like um, representation of the female of divinity of the the feminine divine um, is actually I have found in Kuan Yin. So Kuan Yin is, is the Bodhisattva of compassion. So she's the Bodhisattva is like a, um, in the Buddhist tradition, um, her name, actually, it translates um, into she who hears the cries of the world. So the story around Kuan Yin is that she's like reached enlightenment 
she's on the verge of this boundless ocean of nirvana. She's just right on the edge of like, you know, just like disappearing into, into, you know, um, nirvana. And instead she chooses to return to the earth and to provide comfort and to waken all beings until every being is free from suffering. So she's this, uh, this representation of, um, compassion. And, um, again, I, I, I've learned about, um, Quan Yin. I actually, I do, uh, meditation retreats and the last seven day uh, meditation retreat that I did, um, it was through lower lights and, and there was a lot of, um, Thomas who leads the the retreat shared a lot about Kuan Yin. So, so I learned about her more there and then I have kind of done some of my own research and, um, I have an experience with Kuan Yin again, these, um, these experiences help me kind of connect more to them. But, um, I, I actually have, um, seven siblings who are Vietnamese. They were adopted. So for those that aren't familiar, um, like after the Vietnamese, after the war in Vietnam, um, you know, the North, the North had won the war that my siblings were from the South. And so a lot of the families that were in Southern Vietnam, they were, um, they were like sent to re-education camps. A lot of them were starting with nothing. And so a lot of um, parents would try to make enough money. So their kids, there was a lot of people that were escaping from Vietnam at the time, right after the war, and they would escape on boats. They would like pay a fisherman um, to like give them passage on a boat and a, a fisherman would go out at night, um, like just to go fishing. But really he had his boat, the bottom of his boat was full of like 80 people, this like little, like five foot, you know, they could just have to crouch down in there. And then once they made it farther out into sea, then they could come up on the boat. But if they, but if they were caught often, they were again, sent to, sent to camps or they were, uh, sometimes they would be killed. It was bad enough. You know, it's like you think about that situation and there were these parents who were sending their kid in the hope that there was something better, knowing that some of them actually never even made it offshore. And so they would they would float in the ocean until they were found. And often they were found by um, like your hope was that you were found by. A, like a, a refugee service that would bring them to refugee camps often in the Philippines. And, um, and then they, my siblings lived in the Philippines in the refugee camps until they came to the U S and came to our family. So there's a lot more story there, but that when they came to our family, we, it was really busy. Like again, often the story stories around immigration, there's just, there's so much integration. It, it's like even the integration of the trauma that they had experienced, um, there there wasn't a lot of like even time for that. So recently, a lot of that has come back up for me when I think about their experience, and yeah, I was feeling the depth of grief, and um, and then through like thinking of their experience, I I just I I felt like this connection to like all of the people who actually never even made it. Like who were the people who died on the boats and they never even made it somewhere new. And then through that, I like felt this connection to like, who are the people that are, are on boats today? There are people today that are climbing onto boats, trying to get somewhere safe. Yeah. And so it was like through my, my siblings experience 
you know, it took me to these other places, like these people that I don't even know, you know, that like, I never even met those people who never made it anywhere. I don't know the people who are getting somewhere new, but I know my siblings experience. And so to feel like this deep, deep compassion for humanity and the way that we harm each other, it's like through war, people climb on boats and they try to get somewhere new. And then it's also through humanity that we actually can like support each other and, and like create ways that like that harm is rectified. So it's like through that, I felt the depth of suffering, but I also felt the depth of hope and service and care. And to me, it's like when I went into that slipstream, I felt connection to Kuan Yin, this, this like this goddess of compassion who who will not leave until the comfort of every like until everyone is free from suffering and like feeling that in my like in my body in my heart like like that archetype that representation like i also want to like open my heart to the suffering of the world almost like an embodiment of endless compassion yeah like yeah, it's one thing to read about it and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I also want to be compassion. I also want to be compassionate. But then to like, it's like, it was, it was actually through that experience that I, I felt like access to deep compassion. Like why Kuan Yin? Like why does that give you this access to compassion? Is it the stories around her? Is it, uh, yeah, explain, explain how, how that makes sense for you. Yeah, it's like even her name, like she who hears the cries of the world. It's like we can be so like our, our like lives are busy, lives are like uh, we have our own pain, and it's like um, she's this representation to remember, like to open ourselves up to the cries of the world, to actually open ourselves up to to like the suffering of others. And it's so interesting because like <laughs> another example of this is Christ. Like all of this that's in Kuan Yin is also in Christ. And whether you believe in like an atonement or you believe in like um, a human that was on the earth that like, that represent, like, I don't, you know, whatever you believe about Jesus or Christ or Yeshua, it's like, all of this is also in Christ. And, and so it's like, like I knew, I know that about Christ. And, and then once I like came across Kuan Yin and heard all of these traits and characters in a different, like wrapped in a different package, it's like, then I could turn back to Christ. Like, oh, that's, that's what the teachings of Christ are because like, they just become stories. They almost become like, I can't hear them in the same way when they're layered with all this, you know, um, all this stuff I grew up with. And it's like through Kuan Yin, then I had access to Christ. And then I had access to like something even more deep and more rich. As you were talking, there were clear parallels in my mind to Christ as well. But I think the way you described Kuan Yin, it kind of breaks through one of these limitations that Christianity has put on Christ's compassion. In the theology, Christ is compassionate if you're obedient or if you're doing this, this, and this, then you have access to this compassion. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's almost like a stipulation attached with the way it's represented in much of Christianity. But the way you describe Kuan Yin is almost liberated of those, those prerequisites to have access to the compassion. At least the way you described it, I think there was, there's one contrast between the two. 
one of the tricky things about text too, because it's like, um, you know, all these words that are written down and then rewritten and reacts that, you know, it's like, what version of the Bible do we have? And, and what were the actual words of Christ? And, you know, so it's like, you yeah, we can only access these things through our like limited beings with our limited experience. And um, yeah, so, so, but, but what we are reaching for and what like the beauty of these, these figures, these, you know, gods and goddesses is like, this is what we can, this is what we can hope to be. And we can like, you know, without what you described, like without the, like, we're not doing it to check off any box. We're not doing it, you know, so that maybe then we can possibly have worth, you know, am I worthy if I can just do it hard enough? Like without all of that, it's like, it's for the sake of it. And um, it's all that it's even there in the scriptures. The tough thing is, at least for me and the way I look at it and, there's a quote from Joseph Campbell that that describes this perfectly. When you look at religion literally, all of the meaning leaves it. And he's he's basically encouraging people to look at it as mythology, as truth finding and understanding yourselves and where you fit in the world, rather than looking at it as, you know, these things actually happened and here's how and here's the evidence of X, Y, and Z. Like that doesn't matter. Like none of that matters. But you can read these stories that are so clearly not realistic, but they're so powerful and so meaningful if you look at them as a story of the type of people that we want to be or the embodiment of of compassion that we want to incorporate into our lives. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, um, yeah, can we hold it? Can we hold it? Tight, it's like there's this like tight and looseness. Can we hold it lightly enough that we can actually like uh, feel from it? What you know, like can we actually become someone new by holding it lightly enough, but also hold it like seriously enough that that we actually you know that that like were these real? Maybe you know, like but what do we like? What does it do to us when we encounter these just sacred texts? Yeah. So another representation of the female divine of the feminine divine um is found in greek mythology and it's this like primal energy of the universe and the the name for it is gaia so it's um it's more like a power than an entity but it's also like life itself it's mother earth and and so again there's like this this power in this like physical you know it's represented in this like physical like you know we walk on the earth and uh, we encounter the earth and um there's a there's a Buddhist teacher he actually passed away recently his name's Thich Nhat Hanh I would highly recommend Love Thich Nhat Hanh. Such a great, such a great teacher. The only one that I've read is Old Paths White Clouds of his. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. It's such a great, such a great book. Yeah, yeah. All of his, all of his writing is so accessible. It's like very, yeah. So if you're, yeah, if you're gonna like kind of dip in your toes into the to, the waters of Buddhism, he's a great um, way to, way to access that. But so Thich Nhat Hanh, he he um, he tells this like vivid story of of like a flower. And so this is like, again, this like connection with the earth, but he tells this story of like, when you see a flower, if you actually um, sense into it deeply enough, like in that flower is also the seed and it's the, the flower that's blossomed. 
And then the flower like dies and it like becomes part of the earth and there's the, like the compost. And so at any point in that cycle and that pattern of like birth, life, death, rebirth, anywhere along that process, you know, it's like, it's all the same thing, the seed, the flower, the compost. And so some, you know, it's like, it's just these transitions that are all part of the same process. Yeah. So like when you see a flower, it's like, you're also holding the seed. You're also holding just like this decomposed, it's, you know, it's all in there. So again, this like, um, teacher Thich Nhat Hanh helps me like actually understand Gaia and like these patterns of this, like the living universe. Another way I've really connected with Gaia is through these, um, I live out in the country and we have, I grew up, I actually returned to where I grew up and um, I didn't appreciate, it's like when you're growing up, you don't appreciate these things, but on our property are these oak trees and it hasn't been until I've returned back to this like (laughs) land I grew up on that it's like I even could see the oak trees these oak trees are hundreds of years old like oak trees live for hundreds of years and so I like I think about these oak trees that have like been here longer than me and it's like that's like they like what have they seen like how many humans have they seen scurrying around you know like living their lives so I actually turn off and they've really become teachers to me. And there was this one, this one day, um, we live out in the country. And so when the power goes out, we like, we have well water. So like, we don't have water. And so there was this storm that was coming and, um, you know, we're like, Oh, we don't have any water and we don't know how long we'll be out of, of power. So we start like filling the bathtub with water and we're kind of like racing around and I look out and these oak trees are just like swaying in the wind. You know, they're just like, they're just like moving with the storm. And like, they might even fall over, you know, and there was just something so soothing to me about like looking out, you know, I'm like sitting here, like, how long will I be out of internet? And what work do I need to get done? And all these things that feels so important. And, you know, and there's just something about looking out and seeing my teachers, you know, these oak trees just like swaying in the wind that like calmed everything about my, you know, it's like about me. It's just like, I could let go of all of this scurrying. So again, when I, when I talk about Gaia and my, you know, my, my encounters with Gaia, it's like these, you know, it's also these experiences. Both of my daughters are named for Roman goddesses. Just, I I have, I love mythologies. I've always loved mythologies and uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, when you're interfacing with these feminine, this feminine divine, we discussed this in the previous episode. We're talking about the fact that that God, he, she, they is not really an anthropomorphized entity. So when you're when you're thinking about this and when you're learning from nature and you're connecting with the feminine divine, what is that that you're connecting to? Is it really Gaia or are you using the name Gaia? to help you understand an aspect of it. Yeah, this is where I feel so limited by language, but it's all we have. So we do the best we can. No, I don't know. This is, I, I appreciate the question. It's beautiful. And sorry to put you on the spot, but this is, this I think is really fascinating. Yeah. Again, it's like language is all we have. And so it's like almost like this pattern of like, 
things coming into form and then things falling back out of form. There's something really like beautiful to me again, whether we want to put it like, you know, we've talked about some of this, but it's like it, in some ways it, it doesn't matter that it's the feminine divine. And yet I've lived a life where I felt diminished as a woman. I felt, you know, I've been in, I've been in, you know, I've been in board meetings where, um, you know, we're like talking about the budget for a town and like, I just feel fully like I have a voice. And then that same day I like go to try to have a relief society presidency meeting meeting. And I'm told like, well, you can't meet in the building without a man there, you know? And so it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, that's just one example, but like, you know, I've, I've felt diminished for my femaleness, you know, in, in some ways or, or just like blocked from power, even in simple ways. And so, and so in some ways, because I'm this like human with these, these just like experiences, like there is something about finding that power in the female form that actually lets me have access to that so that I can also let go of it. It's like, it doesn't, in some ways it does matter that it's a female because of what I've described, but in the end, it doesn't matter because we all have access to these like masculine and feminine traits. And I believe, like, I, I really feel that if we actually live into them, we're, you know, if we let go of them as being connected to male and female, I know I've said it just the same way before, but we have access to more of ourselves. I'm saying it matters and it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) One of the ways, as you've been discussing kind of the limitations on language, one of the things that I have always found so funny about language is is the minute you define something, you limit it so that it can't be anything else. So for example, <laughs> I'm going to do it right here. I'm a nerd. Almost all of my hobbies are very, very nerdy. But me just saying that I'm a nerd, it cuts off so many other aspects of who I am. You know, a father, a husband, you know... It, and just, you know, just to name a few, but the minute I define myself as I am this, I am a nerd or, uh, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, I am my profession, whatever we define ourselves as, we cut ourselves off of the rest of who we are. And the way you're describing deity like this, I think that's the problem is the minute we ascribe a value to it, it almost loses its meaning. Yeah. I just, I, again, I'm like, like I'm I'm like lost in the polarity of form and formless because I just feel it. I'm not lost in it, but I'm just like feeling it deeply of like, yeah, we need language for these things to even come into form for us. But if we hold on to that too tightly, just like I was talking in the last episode about like um, individual and collective, if we hold on to one side of the pole too tightly, mm. then we've just like, we don't have access to this whole other side of it. And this is the same with like what you're describing. If we, we think things come into form through language, like, yeah, I'm a nerd, but if we hold on to that too tightly, then that's like, it's all we are, or we, we don't have access to all these other parts of ourselves. Yeah. And yet, and yet we also need things to come into form. We need them to come into form so we can actually make sense of anything. And then we need to let them pass, let them move through us so that something else can come into form. By the way, my son just got into Warhammer. 
I, that's quite quite a nerdy thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> the tabletop miniatures or the video game? The tabletop miniatures. Oh, I so okay. I, <laughs> I have been a hobbyist since I was a kid. Since I was uh-huh. like, oh, just barely a teenager, and so I have in my office just like like trays of miniatures because you can't just like you know pile them up, but and you got to have them like protected in foam trays. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them on display back there. Like oh, I, I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, tabletop miniatures is one of my hobbies. So. I love it. It's so funny you say tray because in our home just today we were like having conversations about we need to get some trays. Like what kind of tray? You know? <laughs> is it Warhammer or is it like other some other? I played Warhammer when I was a teenager. I haven't played that in a long time. I do. Ha- I actually have a Warhammer army that I've painted. It looks fantastic, but I don't. Pl- I don't like that game as much so i actually play i play a couple of different games i play D and i do miniatures for D, but i also play a game called infinity oh that's great <laughs> i'm so proud of my son like he got his first like set and he got the like intergalactic nuns or something it was like the only female like army or something you know so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's fantastic is there anything else you want to cover touch on you know, there's something, yeah, to say, I want to say about just, um, like the curiosity, like, like just like getting curious again, like hold all of these texts lightly, like they don't all need to resonate, but there's so much, um, there's, we have access to just so much wisdom through so many traditions within traditions, outside of traditions. And like, um, it's just like, it's so exciting what's out there. And then like what we can like come to know about ourselves through this like collective, um, like consciousness, like through thousands of years, people have been writing about what it is to be human. And, um, when we explore that, we, we know more about what it is to be human. And I think, I think that is the purpose of art. And in my mind, like art is almost an extension of these like myth stories Mm -hmm. in cultures in the past, we would, they would create myths and, you know, talk about God, but today we just, we use it in, in stories and art. And that's the mythos that we're telling today. And that's how, I mean, mythology is a vehicle for, for teaching a lot of different things. But I think that in our culture today, that's what we're creating to, do, to fill almost that same role that mythology filled in the past. For me, we've talked a lot today about sacred text. Like to me, what are like texts that just have like sacred wisdom, just kind of universal wisdom in that, in them. And like, yeah, somebody else might be drawn to like, um, yeah, like even visual arts, or maybe like we find these like there are there are like television series that I watch, and I you know I'm like learn like what it is to be human. There, you know, we talked a little bit about like like figure you know what did you call it miniatures you know, oh, like, yeah <laughs> you know like whether it's warhammer D, like these are created by humans that are also like expressing the potential of of what it is to be human like in all these different forms yeah and i i think that's the pursuit at least for me is to understand truly what it is to be human and then to be the best version of whatever that looks like and that's the goal 
Yeah. And to embrace it in all of its, um, I mean, again, this is a whole nother topic for a whole nother day, but like to actually embrace, like we've talked a lot about these like um, big and beautiful, um, but there's also this just embrace of like the everyday and the ordinary and also the embrace of like, like we're not here just to like find joy, but actually how do we live into our own grief and sorrow and, and like live into, like, if we fully live into that, we can also live into our joy. Yeah. So just like really embracing the, the fullness of being human. For those things that you're describing right there is really the reason that I've leaned into stoicism because stoicism doesn't care about gods and eternity primarily focused on living a good life. Mm-hmm. The Stoic philosophers do talk about gods because they were, you know, they were in a time period where that was that was very present. It's almost like they look at themselves as gods and they talk about their ability to reason as being the same thing that sets the gods apart from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, since we're the same as them, let's just figure out what this really means. Mm-hmm. They examine what it is to to be a reasoning creature mm-hmm. and that's that's really the pursuit of what they're they're discussing and that, anyway that's that's why i've leaned really hard into it because it doesn't really doesn't care about the details of you know why we're here where we're going if there's an afterlife it's just here's the things you need to know if you're going to be a good person and a good citizen even our traditions can take us in this direction but we we spend so much of our time living like so far into the future or so far into the past. And I do, you know, like, um, like what you're describing, describing, it just brings us right into the present moment. And, and that's, you know, it's like, we think of like some transformation happens, like in the far in the future, that's when like, you know, we'll be just like made perfect or whatever, but like, that's, (laughs) that's the, when we talk about like, what is spirituality? Like, that to me is a spiritual practice of like returning again and again to like this present moment. Like, who are we right here, right now? How are we living our lives? How are we interacting with others? Yeah, it's, that's a deep spiritual practice to me. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a pleasure. It's been a fascinating discussion. We went in a direction that I fully did not anticipate. <laughs> And I loved it. I, I think my favorite thing that you said was, and this was after I'd asked you about how you, how you viewed um, Gaia and your uh, talking about the trees, but you said that you hold on to it because you need there to be a feminine divine, but then you understand that you don't hold on to that so tightly and you understand that this divinity is genderless. That's not where I expected today to go at all. And I loved it. I thought that was so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, there's freedom. There's freedom in that, you know, to not be bound by, um, yeah, to not be bound by any of the, you know, it's like, like use it all in a way that we can let things come into form and then just don't hold on to a, a moment too long, you know, or too tightly. Yeah. We should do the same thing with the the masculine divine, you know, the the Yahweh, the heavenly Father sort of thing. Like, yeah, I'm not telling anyone that they shouldn't believe in gods, you know. Just because I've come to one decision, you can come to your own decision on on if they exist or not. Hold them lightly, just as Michelle is is saying here, because the minute we define a thing, it loses 
the rest of its meaning. Yeah. 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 No, for me, this isn't just about the feminine divine. It's, it's everything, anything, even the stories that are told us by like, you know, I'm actually um, in my last year um, in grad school to be a therapist and. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So even, even the, um, you know, like hold everything lightly, hold the things like we talked a little bit here about roles. Like, you know, there's like in psychology, there's a term called interjection. They're like the, the stories that someone else told us about ourselves and we swallowed them whole, you know, we're like, oh yeah, I'm that thing. And you don't know till, you know, 80, you know, 40 years later that you're like, (laughs) oh, I'm not that thing. Like somewhere along the way, my sibling said like, no one wants to hear what you have to say. And I'm sitting with a group of people in my forties. I'm like, no one wants to hear what I have to say. You know, it's like this interjection that someone else gave me. You know? For me, it was, you're so lazy. You can't, you know, you can't pay attention to anything. And then, you know, 30 years later, it's like, oh, I have ADHD and that's why I'm like this. Anyway. <laughs> oh man. But you spent all those years like holding it tightly, you know, yeah. it's like, we, you know, that's this practice of like, like let these things in, but let them move. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a pleasure. And if you ever want to come back, you have an open invitation. <laughs> thank you. I think we still have a lot to talk about. So <laughs> yeah, plenty to go over. <laughs> that concluded my chat with Michelle today. I had a blast talking with her. This concept of holding things too tightly and too loosely is fascinating. It's something that I want to explore a bit more in my own personal life. There are so many applications of that sort of an idea. I am so appreciative for the wisdom that Michelle shared with us today. I hope that you guys enjoyed this this chat as much as I did. And (laughs) I may have revealed just how nerdy I am today. Not just video games, but also painting tabletop miniatures and playing strategic tabletop miniature games. (laughs) I do have to apologize. When I was recording that, I was showing Michelle some of the miniatures that I've painted. And so I actually turned away from the microphone. (laughs) I stepped away from my microphone. So my audio quality dropped a little bit there. And I apologize for that. I was showing her miniatures from a tabletop game called Kingdom Death that one of my brothers gave me, which if you're familiar with the game, that's that's a really nice gift. It's it's a very, very expensive board game that's really hard. And the miniatures are just macabre and beautifully strange. Anyway, (laughs) I'm getting sidetracked. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like it, share it with your friends and family. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast at whatever streaming service is convenient for you. Leave a review. Let other people know about it. I appreciate you guys so much. And as always, I hope that you have an excellent day.